0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sparks, 538's science podcast, where we read interesting science writing and then talk about the big ideas behind it. I'm science editor Blythe Terrell, and today we're going to be talking about how difficult it is to convince people to change their minds, particularly when it comes to ideas about science, through The Unpersuadables, a book by Will Storr. With me today is two thirds of our awesome 538 science team. We have senior science writer Maggie Kurth Baker. Hey, Maggie. Hi. We have public health, food, and culture writer, Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Hey, Anna. Hey, ladies. And we are missing Christy Ashwanden who is on book leave, which is a bummer, but she'll be back. So today we're <laughs> talking about ideas related to The Unpersuadables by Will Storr. Maggie, can you give us a, a rundown
1: of the book? The Unpersuadables is about the beliefs that spawned a million angry memes God created the earth in six days, 6,000 years ago. The Holocaust never happened. Water has a memory that can be infused into sugar pills to heal your body. Uh, What I really liked about this is that Storr isn't necessarily trying to convince you that these beliefs are incorrect. I kind of get the impression that he assumes if you're reading, you are already pretty solidly convinced. But what is interesting about it is that... He's interested in why we keep getting into these debates, where, you know, people who consider themselves science advocates feel like they have this mountain of evidence that you can lay out, and the people that they're trying to persuade just kind of look at it and go, meh, you're wrong. And essentially, the answer turns out to be that our brains are ridiculous. (laughs) One of our
0: favorite topics, how our brains (laughs) are ridiculous (laughs) at 538. Um, It's true, though. I mean... Well, in terms of what Storr is arguing here, I mean, and what we've read many, many other places before, our brains are set up to trick us, and we're kind of, in some ways, living in worlds of make-believe.
2: Yeah, but it's also, there's a pretty interesting thing where, like, in each chapter, he, like, you see him, like, again, I mean, he obviously kind of believes, falls on the side of, like, believing in the hard science um, answers to the world, but, like, he has these moments when he has either like sympathy or um, pretty, I would say like belief with whatever the, like the other side is, you know? So he's like, he goes to this um, Indian guru and, you know, he, he has these like feelings of, of, really, um, like, it's really easy to sympathize with the other people. It's really interesting because he's not just reject, I guess what I'm saying is he's not just rejecting the people who are, who are like the quote unquote anti-science, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things I really liked about it is I, you know, I would actually call it empathy more
1: than sympathy, that like, it's, yeah. it's kind of about understanding that people are people and being it you know he's biting
2: but he's not a jerk yeah but you know it's like even the difficulty i'm having expressing what he expresses in each of these chapters, i think is kind of like indicative of it because it's more than just like it's more than sympathy or empathy like he also i think he sides with them and believes them in certain aspects um and it it's interesting to watch him like go through that um that sort of thought process and emotional process every time he encounters this group who like before he walks in you know he he thinks of them as sort of like anti whatever and then Mm -hmm. And then has these re- like pretty strong reactions to them, which I find really interesting it 's also interesting because he makes clear to note that he really likes these people
0: right i um, mean even ones that are that have beliefs with which he very strongly disagrees, like the you know, the holocaust deniers i mean he found he found that in some cases he still connected with those people on some level, which I think you know what he expresses was unnerving but um, was the result of spending time with him and listening to their ideas. And I think, you know, to, to clarify or to underline what Anna is saying here, um, one of the things that Storr does is he goes in different chapters from one sort of belief system to another. You know, he talks to people who are believers in um, holistic medicine, for example, and he goes to a, a yoga retreat that sounds so, Pretty brutal, actually. It sounds very miserable. But he tries to have experiences and sit down with people and and listen to them without judgment, which I think can, is extremely hard to do, in the interest of understanding like where these beliefs come from and why people, why people aren't persuaded by what he sees as fairly clear science in the other direction.
1: I was also really interested in the fact that he probably saved the most skepticism for the capital S skeptic community, Mm -hmm. which honestly I'm really empathetic with. Um, You know, my, my bias here is that I kind of went through this whole phase of being like, yes, skepticism is a movement and we're all going to debunk the things that are wrong and kind of have over the years sort of ended up a little bit where store is where you kind of come away being like, okay, well, this community of people whose hobby is not believing in things, and who are often kind of cruel about Mm -hmm. silly beliefs, while they themselves also have silly beliefs. And like, that's, that was a really interesting thing to sort of see somebody else struggle with even while both you know he and i also are like yes well and science is right also so Mm -hmm. um (laughs) you know it's it's a it's a complex feeling and i think he did a really good job of capturing that
2: yeah megan he also like it's also there's this big question of like what can we know like what things can there be evidence for or against and i think with the skeptics community but you know on on both sides of the sort of like skeptical aisle he he like it's pretty interesting in sort of trying to force us to think about like, what exactly would evidence for this thing look like? Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and in terms of the evidence itself, you know, people accept different forms of what they would consider evidence, you know? And even if you look at the evidence, there is plenty of science that shows that our brains are, are still set up. To help us to force us to reject evidence that may be good if it goes against what we already believe is accurate, and we you know we think for example, like I believe in X scientific idea, and if I see evidence against x scientific idea i'm far less inclined to believe it, even if it may be maybe solid science you know so i mean it's it, the point too is that there's you know there's not there's not just one way of looking at evidence. And there's also, and nobody is immune from bias and cognitive biases. I mean, the skeptics, as Maggie mentioned, you know, are just as susceptible to it. And I think he does a pretty good job of pointing out, you know, sort of some hypocrisy there. And I think that is particularly compelling as we talk about, um, you know, issues uh, related to fake news and, you know, how easy it can be to believe something that is demonstrably false If, you know, you see it enough times, depending on where it where it comes from, if it comes from someone you trust. I mean, all these different things make it very difficult for people to actually parse out
2: what's true and what's not true. Yeah. I was thinking about that a lot because like so, you know, we obviously this time is being described as like growing anti-science and fake news, blah, blah, blah. But I was like wondering if that's true or if it's just the ability to elevate those things. Theory, those like anti-scientific beliefs has improved, right? And so we're sort of encountering them more, and that means like more people can think about them. Like I, you know, like if we're so if we're pre-programmed with these stories um, and ways of understanding the world, and now you can encounter things that confirm what you're, what you believed already more easily than maybe you could in the past. Like your network is bigger. Um, you know what the difference is there between like as opposed to like this growing anti-science movement
1: so i'm actually going to argue here and readers feel free to yell at me because i am literally pulling <laughs> this out of my head right now as we talk
0: literally um, literally
1: <laughs> you don't know what i do in it, my
0: house. that is a fact
1: um, <laughs> <laughs> thank goodness <laughs> i work from home um gonna argue that that it isn't growing that there's a stronger backlash because for the second you know since like the second half of the 20th century science has had more power to be the authority and to you know have it wasn't the underdog anymore but i think like these beliefs have always been around i mean you look back at the early 20th century and you have spiritism and you have millions of people believing that these little girls found fairies at the bottom of the garden that are clearly, if you look at the photos, like that's, that's a cutout from a magazine. What are you people doing? You know, I mean, it's, this is something that's always been around and I don't necessarily know that it's, I don't know that I've ever seen proof that it's growing uh, so much as People are angrier about it. Well, yeah. I mean, it's kind of.
0: I don't have the. You know, I don't. I don't know. I don't have anything in front of me. I guess to say whether it, we can argue that it's growing that more. What would that believing proof things. look like? Right. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if, it's, if there's research. On, well,
2: <laughs> <laughs> we, what do you do? Poll. So, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Well, I mean, but I think but, right. What,
0: so like, I would what, agree what that about people... our faith in
2: polling. Well, yeah.
0: <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I know that's is that our own part, our own bias. And, we and, think that's what we choose to trust is the polling.
1: Um, and know, while people, we're people all, while we're all kind of like on this, um, what, what do we know? What do we ever? Can we ever know anything? Can we just also stop for a moment to talk about the chapters of this book that? were about how your brain is essentially constantly creating a model of the world rather than observing the actual world. Because yes. I'm having nightmares.
0: <laughs> so, like, so, Maggie, tell us a little bit more about that that part of it for those of us who for those who've not read the book.
1: Uh, well, I mean it's it's one of those things where cognitively I knew that my eyes don't actually see exactly what exists. I see what light my retinas can absorb and my brain can make sense of. But as he kind of goes through all of this stuff about the limitations of your senses and about, you know, all of the things that exist that your senses can't actually pick up and the fact that there's like, you know, what, what did he say? Like a 30-second delay <laughs> that you're living in, which... Uh, you know, makes me sort of wonder how anyone is good at sports ever. <laughs> I'm not sure. Was I, it 30? But, I, it was half a second. Half, yeah. a, half second. a second. Half a second. Yeah. Sorry. That makes more sense. <laughs>
0: but still, you know, that's a. There, that's there was a 30. Reaction time. Yeah, yeah. Reaction time in a half second
1: matters. And, you know. Yeah. And I mean, there's just all of this stuff that, like, particularly the stuff where he was sort of talking about all the things you can't see and all of the things you can't hear that are still there that are real, mm-hmm. but are not real to your brain because your brain just can't perceive them. And so they're not part of your model of the world. And like, I, that just sounds like the setup for a really fantastic horror story about something sitting right next to you and you can't see it, but your cat can, you know, I mean, yeah. it's <laughs> the multiverse. And I think, yeah. I think it's super fascinating to think about it that way. And I think it's also interesting to think about it that way because of you know who we are at 538 the idea that the world is a model that the that you are constantly just living in this predictive model that you make yourself Mm -hmm. trying to understand you know your brain's now cast
2: (laughs) i gotta say maggie i i like there are ways that I find this terrifying, but I actually mostly find it, like, it fills me kind of with wonder, the idea that we could all be sitting in the same room and, like, not only do we observe different things because we're, you know, looking for different things and trying to confirm different things and whatnot, but that, like, we might actually be seeing a different World, yeah. Um, And what I like about it too is that that's like a really fantastical idea, and kind of brings us away from the idea that my my whole life is built around mini models that I'm just constructing all the time. Which, weirdly, I don't find very satisfying. The idea, (laughs) yeah. Well, and I think it also like it's it's it is unsatisfying,
1: right? Because it's unsatisfying in that same way that you know I I have this very distinct memory of being like maybe five or six years old and sitting in the car and watching all these other people drive by and suddenly realizing, Oh, I'm never actually going to know what they're thinking. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: like, this was that kind of same sort of unsatisfying feeling of like, I'm never actually going to even know what other people are seeing.
0: Right. And there's there no shared reality. Like how do yeah, we there's, cope there's in that Yeah, there's
1: no kind of- sa- shared reality. So how yeah. do I, yeah, how
0: can I tell you what's wrong or what's right if what's right in my reality might be different from what's right in your reality? Like there's, where's the common ground? It's very complex.
1: Ah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess it's okay, time to go I'm home, terrified. everyone. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> <Not> right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there's another aspect to this though, too, which I think is kind of interesting is like that... um Okay, so first of all, our realities might be different, but there's also things that you just can't do scientific measurements of right so he brings this up a lot in the book store does um you know thinking about ghosts and um religion and you know other stuff that i think is super interesting um but like there's lots of things that we can't run a randomized control trial on to to figure out right so there's like psychedelic drugs and and what what experience you're having and how that may or may not help with ptsd even though there's some like pretty interesting early evidence about that like you can't do a randomized control trial on something that alters your perception.
0: <laughs> right. Um, Thanks right, a lot. Yeah. U S government overlords,
2: <laughs> you and your rules like, about LSD. Well, no, but like, like no, you, not even the how rules. How would you do like, it? Yeah. How would you do that? Right. Like, it's how just like you, can't, you can't, can't blind somebody to the fact that they're taking a psychedelic <laughs> drug. That's, I mean, I mean, sure. yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of
1: like uh, one of the things that, uh, you know, I did that story on the conflict of interest science and, uh, which I, I think relates a lot to what we're talking about here. Um, And like one of the things that came up is like, how do you even set up a blind trust for somebody like Trump? You can't make him forget that he owns Trump Tower. It's that same sort of problem. You know, when something is that when something is that um, much a shaping your reality so much, how do you step away from it? How do you Mm -hmm. not see it?
2: Right. And similarly, I lived in India for a few years. And when I was there, I spent a lot of time in Kashmir. And, you know, there's been obviously a lot of violence and I was reporting on mental health. And so I spent a lot of time with psychiatrists and they... We talked a lot about this very interesting thing where um, they deal a lot with patients who have gins haunting them, right? So these are shadow people um, in the closest thing you might be able to say is their ghosts, but it's a pretty, pretty different concept that exists in the Muslim world. And they are super frustrated because there's all this literature from Europe and the U S that kind of tries to discredit the idea of gins, right? It says like mm-hmm. these people are, um, paranoid or, um, have schizophrenia, that that kind of thing. Um, and, and they're like, no, look, we have well-documented case studies where we've been able to treat patients and it's because we believe in the gins and we're able to work with the patients and deal with the gins. Like you, it doesn't, you can't just, ignore them and pretend it's something else. And like, we wouldn't have been able to treat our patients if we didn't share these beliefs with them. But it comes back to that same thing. Like, how are you going to prove <laughs> whether or not they're there? Right. Is that um, unscientific it's pretty...
0: treatment? If yeah. It's, yeah. I mean, just because you can't, you can't prove that the source of it is what people think the source of it is. Exactly.
2: And to have like different practitioners who have share, you know, their own, they, these are also humans, the the psychiatrists, right? Like they have their own set of beliefs and you can't separate that from it so like you know you have a maybe a u.s psychiatrist who doesn't believe this and then you have you know possibly somebody from pakistan who does and like how do you like where do you even begin to untangle all that i think is super interesting
1: um Mm -hmm. this is a this is a point where i I also want to give a shout out to a couple of other books that are new that i have read recently that really tie into some of this stuff um these are friends of mine, but these are really super interesting books. Like one of them is about exactly this, um, like these cultural bound syndromes, uh, and it's called The Geography of Madness. And there's just this stuff all over the place that either is, you know, even stuff that we would call depression plays out so much differently depending on what your culture is. And you, there's no way for you to treat it unless you expect, like, accept the norms of that culture, because otherwise like that person's just completely bonkers right like it's it's such it 's so interesting to me how much mental health is a product of culture um, and then the other one is called suggestible you uh, by a journalist called eric Vance and it 's talking about a lot of the same sort of things about brain science that unpersuadables does but more about physical health and the placebo effect because you can get you know you can take the stuff that is not provable and not necessarily the same from person to person and end up with demonstrable physical effects which is one of the things that makes it super weird you know the fact that your brain that what was this what was this thing that you and I were both freaking out a little bit about Blythe that 90% of what you're seeing right now is constructed from memories. Yeah. <laughs> your, your brain that has like no real world that it actually shares with another human being can make pain go
2: away. Like, how weird is that? But, then, but it's just like also a little bit dangerous to, I mean, we use saying it's cultural can kind of be demeaning in a sense, like it's not right, real. Right, right, right. And that's like, that's such a dangerous thing because it, it is real, right? Right, I mean, exactly. I yeah. guess that's where I was getting with the with the gins is like, it, I mean, it is it's it's real, right? Like, cause right? It's... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, yeah. if you try to explain it away using a cultural, and I know you're not doing this, but I'm just saying, if you try to explain it away as cultural, like, then you're going to completely miss the point.
1: Right? Yeah. I mean, like, it's they they call them cultural syndromes, mm-hmm. but it's it's more about like, yeah, this is real to people. Like, this is actually you, and you can't if you go around saying like, okay, well these people believe in this super weird thing where they think their penises are getting stolen, like then you don't
2: –
1: there's just no way to like even have a conversation with anyone because mm-hmm. if you don't accept that it's real for that person, like there's nothing you can do.
0: And that's right. a syndrome uh, – not a syndrome. I don't know what you would call it actually. Um, but that is very, you know, a uh, very real – Gosh, I don't know. Would you call it a diagnosis? I mean, it's something that is reported in different parts of the world. You know, people believe that their genitals are being stolen, right? Right. I just want to explain a little bit so we don't. Yeah, just like penises are stolen and then move on. Yeah, sorry, that's it. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) surprise. Yeah, yeah. But it's so that that's one of these that you know that often comes up in terms of you know an experience people have that is viewed by by Westerners as, like, something totally out, outlandish they don't understand. And, you know, they, I think there's a tendency to think that it's not, that that's not, like, a, a real medical problem, you know?
2: Right. Well, I, like, we have an easier time with with pain, right? Like, mm-hmm. believing that somebody's experiencing pain even if we can't figure out the source. But we, have, we, we get a lot, we're much worse at it when you start bringing up other kinds of medical concerns.
1: Well, and so I think, like, a really good example of this is, is actually ADHD. Um, because you can simultaneously demonstrate that this is something that runs in families. And when you look at, you know, brain scans as populations, you can see that populations with ADHD diagnoses look different from populations that don't. Um, but at the same time, We also know that this exists as a problem for people because of how our culture is set up. Because, like, as a kid, you're expected to do certain things in certain ways in a classroom and do testing in certain ways. And so diagnoses of it go up partly because biology, but also partly because of how biology and culture interact. And the culture part doesn't mean that the biology isn't real, but like at a different time, that might not have been, you know, something that you would have called a problem or the same kind of problem or, you know, like it's. It's really heavily dependent on culture, even though it is also real.
0: We talked about a lot already, and I want to go back to kind of how our brains work and how we can address our own biases, if we even can. You know, one of the quotes that struck me from the book was, these days when pondering matters of personal belief, the most appropriate question we can ask of ourselves is no longer, am I right? But how mistaken am I? How biased? So I want to think a little bit about that. Maggie and Anna, I don't know if you do either of you have thoughts on how we can <laughs> how we can counteract our own biases. <laughs> I mean because the point the, one of the points that's made, you know, I, I think a lot of people have been quick to say, oh, you know, Trump voters are believing in fake news or there are people in our in our society who are very anti-science. But I think that ignores the fact that every single one of us, no matter where you fall and what you believe in, has biases. So, you know, we all, we should all be addressing this, this issue or thinking about
2: it. Yeah. I mean, there's, <laughs> so, to give, me answers. To... give me answers, please. <laughs> so I've got no answers. Like reading this book, I was, I mean, it, like there was a lot of effort to convince me that there was basically nothing I could do about the fact that I have preconceived notions about the world and I'm going to adhere to them, you know, come hell or high water. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I don't think that's exactly fair and not true. I mean, I, you know, I, I think the, the answer kind of comes back to like we have to question ourselves and be skeptical, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but it doesn't, um, you know, one, okay. So one quote that really struck me was uh, he says at one point I've put my trust in the people that culture has directed me toward. And you know, it's his way of saying like we all have these narratives through which we view with the world. And some of that's constructed by the people that we, that we sort of, that lead us in a way. And I think you could ask yourself questions about who you've chosen to follow and then try as hard as you can to be analytical about where what their flaws might be, right? Like who you see as an expert, who do you think that those experts are and like what biases might they hold because we're, if we're hanging our beliefs on them. But, you know, I don't, I don't have the answers to this question. I guess that's (laughs) my long way of saying I've got no idea, Blake.
0: And part of that too that that comes up is, you know, we, we say we trust the evidence, but it's not (laughs) necessarily evidence that we've gone out and collected and analyzed on our own. Yes. Oh God,
1: yes. Yeah, I mean, I'm like, this discussion. is... So, I mean, think there, there were two things here that I, I wanted to talk about. I'm, I'm saying two because I want to remind myself to actually come back to the second one. Um, the first one was that what you just said about, you know, if we're, we're not doing the research ourselves, right? Like... There is not enough time in the day for everyone to do all of the work of reality themselves, right? Like I can't be my own car mechanic and my own farmer and my own home repair person and my own scientist. At a certain point, I have to trust experts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, it basically just comes down to that. And that's, I think one of the interesting things, though, about this book is just reminding you that, like, that's where bias comes in. That we have to trust these people, but how we trust them and thinking about why we trust them maybe matters. Um, And and the other thing that I – so (sighs) – You know, I did this story for us on conflict of interest and what science says about it, particularly in relation to Donald Trump's conflicts of interest um, with his businesses. And one of the suggestions that a couple of like the political ethicists I talked to kind of came up with was this idea that this is the kind of thing that makes diversity important and not necessarily even Mm -hmm. just like racial or ethnic diversity, but like diversity of thought in a space, mm-hmm. and uh, that kind of ties back to me. To I spent a year at Harvard with the Neiman Fellowship a couple years ago, and I sat in on this lecture at the Kennedy School where a guy was talking about this research he was doing about this. You know, what he saw is this huge problem in American politics, where all of the people setting U.S. You know, State Department policy, whether they're coming from the right or the left, they're all coming out of the same damn schools. Mm-hmm. So they've all got the same professors. They're all doing the same readings. They're all building from like the same literature base and basis of ideas. And so no matter which side you get
2: in, the changes aren't that big. Well, oh, that's interesting. Like, where, how are we measuring diversity, right? Right. So, yeah. Like, yeah. Exactly. <clears throat> so we we tend to do it in polit- politics on the left right spectrum, but that there are other aspects that could be more important that are like skewing the whole sample.
1: <laughs> right. And like. Right. And like, even if it's even if it's as simple as like. Does everybody at your job come from the same school of thought, you know, or is there somebody, can you bring in somebody who came from, you know, a tiny little school where somebody has like a different philosophy about this? You know, it's, it's such an interesting thing to me also, like, so I was talking to Richard Painter, who worked with the Bush administration, uh, as a, like, kind of ethics czar. And one of the things he was telling me is like, when you talk about conflicts of interest with like people coming from business into politics. Sometimes you're not even talking about like okay this you know this one industry has too much sway. Sometimes you're talking about this one company has too much sway and that we're bringing in not just like everybody from you know finance we're bringing everybody from one firm in finance. And so their conflicts of interest are going to be really different than the conflicts of interest and biases that would exist if you had even just a broad swath of finance firms, right? So, like, having more people who think differently in the same space at least means that you're being asked, hey, how are you biased more often? Right. But then, like, that just kind of also gets you around to, like, yes, but some people are, you know, uh, whose diversity of biases do you actually want around? Um, Because, like, you know, I I think there's a tendency also for us to then say, well, then I guess we have to have, you know, Infowars also telling us what's going on, which, you know, it's obviously not actually... Is maybe to another extreme,
0: right? Right. Not everybody. Need to, not everybody should have a seat at the table. And and when you're talking about things like people who are deliberately aiming to misinform,
2: but we could we could spend more time questioning like who we put our trust in that's directing us,
1: right? And and why? And kind of like where their thought process comes from.
0: Mm-hmm. Right, which is, I mean, it's kind of hard, you know, it's, it works well if those people are transparent about their thought processes, you know, but it's also, it requires a great deal of of critical thinking. And I mean, I walked away from this saying, okay, you know, how can I push back against the biases that I know are here? And one of the things that we've sort of alluded to that Store talks about is the reason that this can be so hard is that we all construct stories and that's how we communicate with each other Mm
2: -hmm. and ourselves. Like how we keep ourselves sane.
0: Right. Yeah. Like everything, (laughs) you know, and and we're the heroes of our own stories, which was something that he, that he wrote about a lot that I, I think I bought. I was like, okay, I could see, I mean, everything is about us. And so, you know, it's really, if we are the heroes of our own stories, I think that also makes it more difficult to push back against the things that we think and that we feel. Um, that may be completely wrong or unfair or at le- at the very least like ill researched you know um, yeah but yeah, the storytelling piece of it is really is really tricky, and also people who you know people who are really good at telling stories have an advantage, and people who are really good at building a narrative have an advantage over people who are less good at that um, and he uses a specific example of of you know somebody who comes from a nationalist perspective who who creates a great story about keeping out immigrants and how you know this is like I'm, I'm the person who will protect you and i will you know and i will do all these things to help protect our country from this force and i feel like we have seen that sort of storytelling uh from trump kind of throughout the campaign and i think we see storytelling from people on all sides of the political spectrum you know and i'm i think that you know people identify with a certain story because it fits better with their story than the other person's story does, you know? So it's just really interesting to think about the interplay of of uh, all of the stories that that are make up our lives and how hard it is to step back from that and say, okay, is this, you know, is this story the right story?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think... I- <laughs> <laughs> well, I... To to present something that maybe sounds more like good news, (laughs) which none of this does. Um, I sort of came away from this with like, you know, if you want to convince somebody of something, handing them the facts, you know, does next to nothing. Uh, That what maybe is more powerful and more useful is figuring out how the reality you want them to acknowledge can fit into the narrative they already have. And that means having the empathy that store is sort of showing in this book. And it means sort of trying to understand other people's perspectives, at least enough so that you can show them how your perspective and their perspective might fit together in a way that they didn't expect. And maybe a way that you didn't expect, um, And my big example about this is that, uh, you know, a few years ago, Kansas Interfaith Power and Light, uh, which is a community group that sort of looks at energy change in the state of Kansas, they did these focus groups in Wichita and Kansas City where they were trying to sort of ask people what you thought about climate change and what you thought about energy. And they kept having over and over the same people who were like, Climate change is a myth and a communist plot. We're also like, and I bought a Prius and I love like wind power and I'm super excited about solar panels on my house. (laughs) And kind of the conclusion that they came to is that, oh, right, there's other reasons for people to be excited about energy change besides being worried about the climate. And like that's one of those spots where, oh, okay well, here's like a place that two opposing viewpoints can maybe dovetail. And maybe that's why when we look at polling, we see that a majority of Americans, including in 2016, for the very first time, a majority of Republicans want to prioritize renewable energy.
0: Right. So it's a different piece of the same puzzle.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I or mean, like it, flipping you it come... on its
0: side and looking at it. Or sort you can of...
1: come to the same conclusion, yeah. but for totally different reasons. Right. And like, maybe if you focus on the shared conclusion, you can get somewhere.
0: That is hopeful. That is a hopeful mm-hmm. note. I mean, <laughs> and I, I, don't mean I don't mean hopeful know. in terms of like, I think it's important that we, everyone thinks the same things and that we all agree on everything. Right. And right. I mostly mean just, you know, as we communicate with each other as people, you know, how do we think critically and, and help ourselves think critically, help others think critically and have conversations and productive debates that can lead to, you know, people getting closer to each other or at least respecting each other's viewpoints more. I mean, it, to me, it's more how do you have those conversations and not just feel like you're completely at odds with the, the person who disagrees with you. And I think it's, it's tricky.
1: Well, and it's, I mean, it's tricky also because, like, you know, we're mostly talking about – it doesn't necessarily matter to me as a human being whether somebody believes in creationism or evolution. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it, it can frustrate the hell out of me, but it doesn't necessarily matter to me. But then you also have these differences of opinion that kind of boil down to, like, I don't think you're really a person, you know, which is a totally different level. And right. like, then – well, then you can't really expect people to be like, you know, holding hands and singing kumbaya about that.
2: Right. Find a <clears throat> meeting point. Find a right. Of yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah. So basically everything sucks. Let's go home.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I thought, one... we were, thought we were going to end on a happy note yeah. there. But... <laughs> well,
0: one thing, one thing I will point out, I guess, uh, I was rereading one of Christie's stories Um from i think a couple of years ago called our brains are primed to reach false conclusions i believe is the was the headline and there is there was a piece at the end about how some scientists had done some experiments with teenagers in which they um, they sort of went through they went through this exercise where they came to a, a false conclusion or a conclusion that was not supported by the evidence that they were given and then it went back through and sort of Hadn't a scientist talked with those teens and explained points at which they maybe should have been skeptical or maybe they should have wanted more evidence or, you know, in an attempt to help them think critically and then ran them through more exercises and saw that, you know, based on the results that they did, they did start thinking and looking at things more critically,
2: Hmm. Um, which so that was kind of hopeful. Yeah. yeah and, and my thought is that there's uh you know, there's a, there's a small movement that's trying to teach empathy to elementary school students. And mm-hmm. it, this sort hmm. of does provide some evidence that, um that, that maybe there's some real power to that, um, that maybe we wouldn't silo ourselves so much later on if we, if we had this built in earlier. Right, right.
0: Okay, so those are two hopeful things. I feel like that, I feel like that's pretty good. <laughs>
1: I feel like well and good. and you know maybe we can walk away from this and also sort of say, like <clears throat> you know there are some functional things where we don't have to agree, and that's okay, mm-hmm. like <clears throat> my husband thinks broccoli tastes terrible. I think he is wrong <laughs> and maybe a little bit of a bad person, um, <laughs> but if I also think about the fact that you know my physical sensory reality is super different than his, and I will never know what broccoli actually tastes like to him. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe maybe we can agree to disagree easier. Yeah, about the things that you can agree to disagree about.
0: Right. You so in that you know things that are like that are not necessarily harmful to another human being. Right. Yeah. You like know, no, it, yeah. A, that's a not liking bro- broccoli is a victimless crime. Yes. Exactly.
2: Um. I mean, except for the broccoli victim. Right. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I walked away from this also thinking, like, humility is important and knowing that we're, (laughs) that we all have biases and we just don't know. And, I mean, and being humble in our approach to the world, I think, is beneficial. But I think that's also quite hard to do because we are all the heroes of our own stories. So, (sighs) um. Anyway, but so in closing, um, Anna Maggie, would you two recommend *The Unpersuadables* by Will Store? Yes, I would.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, each chapter sort of like walks you through like these narratives that we're talking about, and then he ruptures and like forces you to think really hard. So it's a it's a really I found it incredibly engaging, and there's a there's a lot there.
1: Mm -hmm. It was it was a really you know one of the things that I just. I am always on the lookout for nonfiction books that read like fiction, yeah. and this was one of them. Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Okay, then we're going to wrap it up. Thanks so much, Maggie Kurth-Baker. Thank you. Thank you, Anna Maria Berry-Jester. Thanks, Blythe. And that's it for this episode of Sparks, where we talked about Will Storr's The Unpersuadables. In the second part of this episode, Maggie will be talking with Storr himself. Keep an eye on your What's the Point feed for that, which we expect to have out next week. Thanks very much to our producers, Chadwick Matlin and Jody Avergan. And thanks to Tony Chow and Jorge Estrada, who are in the control room. Katie Ferguson was our editor for this episode. And thanks to Joe Sykes. As you know, we do this podcast every month in the What's the Point feed. So you should subscribe now so you don't miss an episode and help spread the word. Also, please let us know what you think. You can email us at podcasts at 538.com. I'm Blythe Terrell. Thanks again for listening.